a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Whether you are a longtime listener or a first-time person, just dialing it in to see what this is all about. I thank you for joining me. I want to mention a couple of sponsors who make this program possible. So if you find yourself overwhelmed with gratitude, I would say reach out to them and say, hey, thanks, man. You made this all possible. They include Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, and Rio del Sion Home Lots. And for you, I have very, very kindly put together contact links in the show notes, which you can find at the thebrianhideshow.com. Just uh, look on today's show notes. That's for February 8th, 2021. Right down there at the bottom of the page, you'll see the sponsors listed, and you can reach out to them and tell them thanks for being a sponsor of this program. So what are we hoping to accomplish here? I'm glad you asked. All I am hoping to do is introduce you to uh, some different takes on the passing scene that uh, may or may not conform to the official narrative. Now, I'm, I'm kind of a nonconformist in this, result, in this regard because I don't think that the official narrative becomes or begins to, to, to be complete in terms of, of what it offers us in understanding the world around us and, more importantly, understanding what you and I could be doing, where our influence is best placed. So, on tap today, we're going to be talking about a number of different things here. We're going to talk about the, the calls for a reality czar to keep us within the official narrative. You know, I, I'm i not even sure where to begin on that one, but, but I have a couple of different articles I want to share with you about this, about why we don't need a reality czar. We don't need someone, you know, sitting there fact-checking everything. Yes, you may believe that, you may not believe this. Doesn't that just sound like totalitarianism i mean does that not sound like the the very worst of east germany or you know the 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 soviet union i don't know i didn't live through either one of those you know i didn't personally experience them but but people who have are saying hey <laughs> let's let's tread carefully also i have a terrific article from dr richard menger he is a neurosurgeon and he has a really interesting take on cancel culture and virtue signaling now, you may be asking, okay, what is a neurosurgeon going to teach us about cancel culture and virtue signaling? I wasn't paying that close of attention. Of course, I, I didn't, you know, watch the president's inauguration. I, I usually don't. But apparently the, uh, the woman who offered the, the national prayer at uh, Biden's inauguration had to walk back some of her comments. Like with, within a very, very short time, she was apologizing officially. I am so sorry that I said what I said. And it has everything to do with cancel culture and, of course, her wanting to, to virtue signal or presumably wanting to virtue signal. So we'll talk a little bit about how competition of ideas and words without fear and without name calling is one of the fundamental tenets of classical liberalism, which is, is most likely the, the kind of mindset that, that you could associate with the, the founding generation, the ones who gave us our system of government we're, we're more, than, more often than not classical liberals. 
We'll spend a little bit of time talking about why do so many people keep clinging to an electoral system that has been commandeered by those in power. And this is a very interesting article from Caitlin Johnstone, who makes a strong case that the the electoral system uses some of the same containment strategies as an Alzheimer's facility does to placate the patients and to keep them from leaving it, to keep them from wandering off. And then if there's time, I want to share with you just an excellent essay from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org. And I know a lot of people, myself included, are kind of reeling from all the changes that are coming at once. I mean, normally I'm used to change taking place so gradually that it's like suddenly you look around and go, wow, when did that happen? Not anymore. Right now the changes are coming at us like a herd of stampeding buffalo. And this is why uh, we find ourselves looking over our shoulders to see what just happened, while at the same time trying to look ahead and see what's coming at us. And Jeff Minnick has a marvelous take on this. Let's begin, though, with the calls for a reality czar to keep us on the official narrative. Um, This is an article from Arjun Walia. And in the introduction, Arjun Walia says, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, so I apologize if you've come across me saying it already. What we have today seems to be a digital authoritarian Orwellian fact checker patrolling the Internet, telling people what is and what isn't. Now, this doesn't imply that there isn't a wealth of fake news and information out there, but should people not have the right to look at information openly and transparently and decide for themselves what is and what isn't? Are people really that dumb to the point where we need big tech to step in and tell us what is true and what isn't? This is a problem, given the fact that many issues are not so black and white. And it also brings in the issue of corruption and the ability of big tech to control the perception of the masses on various issues, be it political or something else. A big concern being raised is the idea that these companies who have been granted the ability to tell us what is have strong political ties. Today, those who support censorship do so under the guise of protection, relaying their opinion that this is necessary to protect our democracy. And the author says it reminds me of the term national security. Today, it's a term used to justify the concealment of information that exposes immoral and unethical actions of various governments and multinational corporations. Is this why Julian Assange is in jail? And there's a quote here. How far have we sunk if telling the truth becomes a crime? How far have we sunk if we prosecute people that expose war crimes for exposing war crimes? How far have we sunk when we no longer prosecute our own war criminals because we identify more with them than we identify with the people that actually expose these crimes? What does that tell us about us and our governments? In a democracy, the power does not belong to the government but to the people. But the people have to claim it. Secrecy disempowers the people because it prevents them from exercising democratic control, which is precisely why governments want secrecy. These are the words of Nils Melzer, Human Rights Chair of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. Now, the author here, Arjun Walia, goes on to say, I agree with NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden that the censorship we're seeing today is not really about protecting people from harm. He pointed out in a recent interview with journalist Glenn Greenwald that the Internet has become the de facto means of mass communication. 
That represents influence, which represents power. And what we see is a, and when, what we see is we see a whole number of different tribes basically squabbling to try and gain control over this instrument of power. This instrument of power allows these platforms to control the way people think, behave, and tells them what to believe. So here's the latest skinny. The New York Times recently published an essay on detailing a range of recommendations for the Biden administration to adopt to fix the reality crisis. That's what they called it. Not only fix the reality crisis, but also to de-radicalize citizens. And this included calls to set up a reality czar and truth commission. Now, again, this has sort of already happened in in various indirect ways. Politicians, doctors, and scientists have now been subjected to extreme censorship measures, especially when it comes to COVID-19. Any information, evidence, or opinion that opposes or calls into question government health regulatory agencies, their recommendations, or actions seems to be completely ignored, ridiculed, and censored. Debate and or conversation is not even encouraged. And this has many people questioning, what's really happening in our world? Why is it that someone like Dr. Anthony Fauci can receive massive mainstream media attention when so many other experts in the field never see the light of day? This is Vinay Prasad, MD, who says, Over the last few months, I've seen academic articles and op-eds by professors retracted or labeled fake news by social media platforms. Often no explanation is provided. And Dr. Vinay Prasad says, I am concerned about this heavy-handedness and at times outright censorship. Now, this is taken from an essay written by technology columnist Kevin Roos, and it explains how conspiracy theories, so-called, have been embraced by millions of Americans and that so many people have succumbed to hoaxes, lies, and collective delusions that has these people creating their own version of reality. But the author asks, is this true? Are all these hoaxes and lies actually hoaxes and lies? Well, he says, I don't know. But what I do know is that the mainstream media fails to have appropriate conversations about them. And on that note, we will take a quick break and we'll come back to this in just a few moments. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to make the case, you know, about any particular issue other than open and free exchange of ideas is a necessity if you want any semblance of freedom, personally or, you know, culturally. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you a column from Arjun Walia. This is from Collective Evolution about a New York Times column suggesting that uh, President Biden hire a reality czar and establish a truth commission. I mean, that sounds pretty noble, doesn't it? Whoa, reality czar? Well, how many countries have that? You know, I'd, I'd be curious to know the answer to that question, too, because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to live in any country that has to have a reality czar and a truth commission to make sure that the people know this is what you're allowed to believe and this is what you aren't. Now, Kevin Roos, writing an essay for the New York Times, says that Joan Donovan, research director of the Harvard University Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, 
suggested that the Biden administration could set up a truth commission. And Kevin says several experts I spoke with recommended that the Biden administration put together a cross-agency task force to tackle disinformation and domestic extremism, which would be led by something like a reality czar. Now here the author says, Roos then states that these experts warned that much more is needed to bring back the millions of already radicalized Americans who the SA claims are drawn to extremist groups like the Proud Boys and conspiracy theories like QAnon. Not because they're convinced by the facts, but because the beliefs give them a sense of community or purpose or fills a void in their lives. Expert Micah Clark, a program director at London counter-extremism firm Moonshot CVE, suggests a kind of social stimulus that would be a series of federal programs to encourage people to get off their screens and into the community-based activities that could keep them engaged and occupied as an effective means to curb radicalization. And this is where Arjun Walia says, you know, to him it's reminiscent of George Orwell's 1984, a classic book depicting a populace ruled by a political regime that persecutes individualism and independent critical thinking as thought crimes that must be enforced by the thought police. This party seeks power above all and through the propagandist Ministry of Truth presents the people with their version of truth. Now, it's interesting. The author says, when it comes to QAnon, I believe this movement has made it much easier for powerful people to justify censorship and the deplatforming of various people on social media outlets. And he says, by that, I don't mean that you need, I, I, he says, by that, I mean, you don't need QAnon to create awareness about elite level pedophilia, for example. There are more than enough extremely credible sources to create awareness about that topic. So why use someone posting as QAnon that doesn't really provide any link to credible information? Why not use the Franklin scandal or more examples from big politics, for example, or information regarding Jeffrey Epstein or survivor testimony? Why not use examples from the Pentagon? And by the way, there are links to each one of these that uh, that he's giving here. Or others from Hollywood and more. Why not use concrete, solid examples? By not using proper sources, it simply ridicules the topic and doesn't bode well for for its credibility. It makes it look more ridiculous and more like conspiracy theory in the minds of the masses. He says when you use something like QAnon, it really does make it look like a conspiracy theory, when in fact the type of elite-level child sex trafficking is a very real one that deserves uh, serious attention. He says it's also important to mention again that this censorship isn't just happening to extremists and other groups. It's happening to renowned scientists, journalists, and doctors. And why is it that the New York Times, for example, would use ridicule and hatred to belittle a belief but never acknowledge the reasons as to why people believe what they do? Why do they simply label something as conspiracy theory without any evidence that it actually is a conspiracy theory? Now, he says, that being said, I don't think anything needs to be censored. I think what we need to do here is less ridicule and more of an understanding of why someone feels the way they do, especially if they disagree with your point of view. More empathy is needed, not the type of censorship happening today, which seems to be done, in the writer's opinion, not to protect people or truth, but to keep a stranglehold over the perception of people for political, financial, and other gains. 
Perception manipulation has long been a tool used by mainstream media, and this is made evident from declassified documents showing the relationship mainstream media outlets have with the Central Intelligence Agency, for example. He says, we're at the point today, Arjun Walia says, that we're at the point today where mainstream media networks can say one thing, while other big networks can be saying something completely different. People do not know who to trust anymore and have been drawn towards independent media outlets. And these media outlets, like Collective Evolution, as a result, have been subjected to extreme amounts of censorship. Here's a nice quote from Edward Bernays. Remember the guy who wrote the book on propaganda back in 1928? The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. If you haven't read that book, by the way, it's pretty revealing. It's not going to turn you into, you know, some paranoid tinfoil hat-wearing, you know, guy hiding out in a bunker. But it will definitely help you understand how it is that there can be such incredible uniformity. Why, did the, why do all the major news outlets use the same phrases, the same buzzwords? There's, there's an incredible consensus that comes about. And it, it has to do with we've got to make sure that the public thinks pretty much the same thing about these things. So here's the takeaway. At the end of the day, regardless of what's true and what isn't, the mainstream and traditional media seem to be falling, failing rather to have important conversations that are controversial. Things are so divided right now. On one end, you have people convinced of something. On the other end, you have mainstream articles denouncing something as a crazy conspiracy theory. What we are lacking right now is rigor and critical thinking. Given we are deeply feeling the need to make sense of our world, is it time we begin to look at developing the inner faculties necessary to move beyond ideology, limited thinking patterns, and truly begin looking at what evidence around us says? What's happening right now might seem chaotic, but it's truly been a catalyst for more people to question what's happening in our world, to question actions by our governments, and to question why we really live the way we do. Good stuff here. This is, again, an article from Arjun Walia. I'll have a link to it in the show notes, and I strongly encourage you, take a look at it. Now, this brings me to the subject of free speech. How do you think free speech would would fare under a reality czar? I'm thinking not so well. And I was very happy to see that uh, Gary Gallas, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, Uh, has written an essay called, No, We Don't Need a Reality Czar, Let Truth and Falsehood Grapple. And he, too, is taking New York Times writer Kevin Roos to task, saying that Roos recently surveyed our truth-challenged information ecosystem and found a proliferation of hoaxes, lies, and collective delusions. As he put it, that limits the Biden administration's ability to, quote, unite a country, because millions of people have chosen to create their own version of reality. In response, he called for the creation of a reality czar-led government task force to root out disinformation. Now, Roos admits, such a call for a truth commission sounds dystopian, before proceeding to ignore many ways it would be exactly that. 
For instance, the Times, the Biden campaign, the Democratic leadership, and others on board with the idea have come nowhere close to pursuing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yet despite a history of disseminating misinformation, clear biases, and uh, suppression of those with different views, they would select the arbiters of Orwellian truth. And here's a great question he asks. So who could be trusted as the realities are? I feel pretty safe in, in the answer that he gives here, and that is no one. we got to take a quick break. We'll come back with more of Gary Gala's essay. Hey, take a moment, if you will. Go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I want you to click on the sponsors links and just shoot them a quick email, give them a phone call, let them know their message is reaching your ears. I'll have more to say about them coming up. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is where we revel in wrong think, which uh, it turns out might actually be a lot harder to do in the days ahead. So let's enjoy it while we're able to do it. Right now, I'm sharing an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is written by Gary M. Gallas. No, we don't need a a reality czar. Let truth and falsehood grapple. And he, he had asked the question as we were going to the break, who could be trusted as the realities are to make sure that we know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? No one. In fact, Gary Gallus has just asked Democrats why they never suggested having a truth czar, a reality czar, when Trump was in office. The reason is because in politics, truth is subservient to power. But since any attempt to provably establish the truth would be littered with obstacles and controversies, and often beyond possibility, while creating a substantial threat to Americans' freedoms, only someone who was indisputably committed to both truth and freedom could be trusted to lead such an enterprise. And he says, well, there are precious few who would qualify. If he wasn't long dead, I would nominate John Milton. Yes, that Milton. Now, Gary Gallus says, why Milton? Well, before Americans fa- America's founding, Milton argued for freedoms of speech and the press and against censorship in England. His defense of freedom of conscience later powerfully resonated with America's founders reflected in our First Amendment. And so Gary Gallus says it's worth considering the principles he would follow to establish truth and preserve freedom in his own words. So here's how Milton would handle it. Number one, if it comes to prohibiting, there is aught more likely to be prohibited than truth itself. Number two, truth and understanding are not such wares as to be monopolized. Number three, when complaints are freely heard, deeply considered, and speedily reformed, then is the utmost bound of civil liberty obtained that wise men look for. Number four, he says, give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. I feel like I need to write that one down or print it out and actually put this here on my studio wall. Give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. And some of you may recognize this next one, number five, truth. Let her and falsehood grapple. 
Number six, whoever knew truth to be put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Number seven, truth needs no policies or stratagems to make her victorious. These are the shifts in the defenses that error uses against her power. Number eight, there is no learned man but will confess be he hath much profited by reading controversies, his senses, his senses rather awakened, his judgment sharpened, and the truth which he holds firmly established, should it not at least be tolerable and free for his adversary to write. It follows then that all controversy being permitted, falsehood will appear more false, and the truth more true, which must needs conduce much to the general confirmation of an implicit truth. Number nine, Milton says, discern in what things persuasion only is to work. Number ten, no institution which does not continually test its ideals, techniques, and measure of accomplishment can claim real vitality. Holy cow, that's a good one right there. Number eleven, liberty hath a sharp and double edge, fit only to be handled by just and virtuous men. To bad and dissolute, It becomes a mischief unwieldy in their own hands, neither is it completely given, but by them who have the happy skill to know what is grievance and unjust to people, and how to remove it wisely. What good laws are are wanting, and how to frame them, substantially, that good men may enjoy the freedom which they merit, and the bad the curb that they need. Number twelve. None can love freedom but good men. The rest love not freedom, but license which never hath more scope than under tyrants. Number 13, how oft have nations gone corrupt by their own devices brought down to servitude? Number 14, what do terms, which are at once corrupt and misapplied, denote but a people ripe for servitude? Just two more here. Number 15, is it just or reasonable that voices against the main end of government should enslave those that would be free? And finally, number 16, they who seek nothing but their own just liberty have always right to win it and to keep it, be the voices ever so numerous that oppose it. Now, Gary Gallus says, in addition, Milton would have, had, would have some other important qualifications in evaluating reality. He would not be misled by government promises that threaten the rights that comprise our liberty just because the government doesn't mention that fact. Similarly, when benefit promises... Outweigh, far outweigh promised exactions from citizens, he would recognize that they are omitting some of the truth. As one of history's most important poets, he would have expertise in what should be considered poetic license. As the second most important author in the English language after Shakespeare, he would almost certainly be alert to the abuse of the language, not in pursuit of truth, but of power over others. Just some of the words that have had their meanings warped are unity, we, Rights, freedom, fair, justice, social, capitalism, need, and greed. And there have been plenty of added words, uh, added word twisting lately, uh, with uh, the ins- with insurrection being near the top of the list. So Gary Gallus says it's obvious that discussing John Milton as a reality or truth czar is not a serious proposal, but that discussion reveals the position's necessary requirements of the love of truth and the love of freedom our country was founded on. Further, it shows that anyone fully meeting those requirements, if given the task, would find a great deal about the positions, promises, and policies of those who appointed them both untrue and unworthy of freedom. 
Consequently, no such czar would ever be appointed. And he says it's hard to see how Americans' well-being would be advanced by anyone less trustworthy for the job. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Strongly recommend you take a look at it. If you haven't ever read Milton, it's been a long time for me. It's It's been probably 12 years or more since I cracked open a, a volume of, of Milton. But even with that limited exposure, the phrase that has always stuck out to me, that has always stuck in my mind is the, the one about to let truth and, and falsehood grapple. Who ever knew truth to be to be, uh, you know, put to the worse in such an encounter. Maybe that makes me naive to think such a, you know, to think this way, to think that, well, you know, the truth is going to out and that's that's just how it's going to be. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just, you know, somebody who doesn't really get how things work. But I have just enough experience under my belt to say, you know what? Everything else isn't working. Try the truth. See how that works. <laughs> it doesn't seem to me like a bad way to solve problems. And I'm absolutely on board with the idea that you you cannot have freedom. You can't find real solutions if someone, particularly someone in power, is artificially limiting the scope of what can and cannot be discussed. I guess I just have confidence that, you know, the, the time-tested truths that billions of minds have worked on throughout human history and, you know, millions of man-hours of, of effort have been applied to thinking about and testing and, and uh, refining. I just, I, I have to think that uh, some of those things have, have stood the test of time and um, I, I'm very suspicious of ideologies that come along and tell us, oh, by the way, everything that came before us was wrong. We're the only ones who truly see how it should be. And and by force, or at least by coercion, we're going to make everybody turn loose of whatever they think they know. I mean, that just, that sounds like brainwashing to me. That sounds like the kind of things that, that took place during China's cultural revolution. That sounds like the book burnings that were done under the Nazi regime. That sounds like what, what Pol Pot was trying to accomplish with his communist revolution in, in Cambodia. When we come back, I've got two quick articles that I'm going to share with you that, uh, that help to, uh, to drive home this need to, to be able to speak freely, to own your words. And, and here's the, the real kicker, to be able to disagree without feeling the need to cancel one another. I've got a piece from Dr. Richard Menger. He is a neurosurgeon, and he talks about cancel culture and virtue signaling. And, you know, I don't have to tell you, cancel culture is a real thing. You know, and to to find yourself on the receiving end of it, all you have to do is attract the wrong person's attention. They will call the Twitter mob, and the Twitter mob will do what it does best, or the cancel culture mob will show up and do everything they can to, to cancel your ability to work, your ability to have peace in public, your ability to live peacefully in your neighborhood. And and in their minds, they are doing a righteous thing. This is what we have to do. I mean, in earlier days, you know, they'd have been the ones picking up rocks or holding the coats for everybody else, you know, who was going to take part in the public stoning. It's just a little more high tech these days. All right, we'll come back with Dr. Richard Menger's article and a real eye-opener from Caitlin Johnstone right after these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Once again, welcome back to the show. And once again, thank you for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. By the way, that shouldn't sound nearly as dangerous as I'm sure some people would portray it. Oh, wrong thinkers. Well, that's the kind of extremism we're trying to root out of our society. Yeah, I'm talking about wrong thinkers in that uh, people who are just more committed to truth than they are attached to their beliefs. People who are willing to, uh, to face, you know, unpleasant truths rather than listen to comfortable lies. That's what I'm thinking about. People who are willing to challenge the narrative when something is just not adding up. Speaking of not adding up, here is a neurosurgeon's view on cancel culture and virtue signaling. And this is an article that I saw published over the weekend on the, the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Richard Menger is a neurosurgeon. He is an MD. And he talked about something that I really, I, I guess I, since I didn't follow the Biden administration, um, or his inauguration rather, I wasn't really in the know about this, but um, Dr. Menger says, look, I normally write peer-reviewed scientific research or more approachable works on free market-based health policy issues rooted in principle and reason. And he says, I feel frustrated and obligated to step out of that lane. And here's the reason why. Progressive Christian author and influencer Jen Hatmaker offered the national prayer during Joe Biden's inauguration. And she began her portion of the prayer with, Almighty God, you have given us this good land as our heritage. But apparently she immediately came to regret those words. Following her speech, she issued the following statement on social media. Quote, The very first sentence thanked God for giving us this land as our heritage. He didn't. He didn't give us this land. We took this land by force and trauma. It wasn't an innocent divine transaction in which God bestowed an empty continent to colonizers. This is a shiny version of our actual history. If God gave this land to anyone, it was to the native community who always lived here. End quote. Now, Dr. Manger goes on to point out that Hatmaker goes on to link the ugly history of owning our nation's uh, white supremacy and using the words, the word matters in all caps. In her apology, She's quick to note that the organizers wrote the prayer, and that leaves three plausible realities. The first is that she's morally offended by the phrase, but truly didn't see the prayer beforehand. In that case, she failed as an influencer and thought leader from a public relations standpoint. Dr. Manger says, I was on the local TV news to speak about spinal disorders and spine surgery. I went over what questions would be asked. It was pretty simple, and it was pretty local. But this was a historic live broadcast in front of 33.8 million television viewers. And in this case, Hatmaker is a New York Times bestselling author. The stage is much bigger. And so he asks, is it actually plausible that she never saw that line beforehand? Now, the second option is maybe she saw the prayer beforehand. She was morally offended by the phrase, but valued the power of the moment and the incredible platform. Therefore, she said something she didn't agree with to promote her brand. And he says, in generally assuming the best of people, that's a pretty challenging accusation to place on someone I've never met. 
And he says the third reality is that she was proud of her moment. She worked hard to get that voice and recognition at the inauguration. It was a joyous moment, and she was proud to share her faith. And then the progressive Christian saw she was about to be outflanked to her left. The Twitter mob either came or was about to come after her. She feared for her brand and her identity. In this sick currency, she has to feel bad. Maybe she legitimately does, or maybe she doesn't. But she needed to sacrifice herself publicly. She then offers an apology to which the echo chamber rattles in jubilant exultation. His point here is that we are in a race against sanctimonious virtue signaling in the public arena. And he asks, when and where will this stop? Now, he clarifies something here. Let me say very bluntly, he writes, that Ms. Hatmaker is completely free to express herself however she likes. This is not a debate about modern-day application of historical abuses, nor, he says, am I disputing the very real reality of the genocide of indigenous people. I'm not labeling Ms. Hatmaker anything. I'm labeling her behavior. This is public virtue signaling, public virtue signal worshiping at the altar of sanctimonious victimhood. And he says this has become a pseudo-religion based on fear. So to keep with the biblical theme, he says, I'm going to cite Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Except Dr. Menger points out, this new religion of progressivism only works the more publicly it can be displayed. For them, there can be no separation of church and the public state. So how do we move forward in this space? Well, he says the indifference of the silent majority on cancel-based culture has pushed everyone out of the room. Fear drives action. People are afraid to speak up. They're labeled with stigmas and names that end careers. And when everyone who disagrees has been pushed out, ideological progressive groupthink takes over the workplace, committees, and boardrooms. This is where we are. And he says, I'm going to invoke a a phrase normally used by progressives. It's not safe. We need this competition. We need the marketplace of ideas. We need a culture that invites discussion and candor and rejects using fear and labels to squelch debate and destroy others. He says classical liberals always valued this tenet of free speech and free expression. Intense direct or indirect pressure to conform by either carrot or stick threatens individuality. And it's this very individuality that will actually create the equality or the equity rather of opportunity that so many desire. So what do you do if you're like most people and you just want to go to work, be able to freak spe- speak freely rather, <laughs> or just be able to disagree in a constructive and respectful way? You don't do it by creating a culture that rewards canceling and virtue signaling. Competition of words and ideas without fear and name-calling, he says, is a fundamental tenet that allows a free culture to prosper. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You can check it out at thebrianheidshow.com. One final note here, and this is one that uh, that really kind of got my attention. Um, Caitlin Johnstone, never known to sugarcoat her message. She's very good at just, you know, putting it out there and, and saying what she's thinking. And she had a recent piece about how electoral politics use the same containment strategies as Alzheimer's facilities. And as I see people really desperately trying to say, well, if we just 
vote smarter, if we just work harder to get the right people in place, we can win back the White House in 2024. We can win back the... They're still putting all that faith in the electoral system and in the, in electoral politics. And here's how they are being herded in a predictable direction by the people who actually control that electoral system. Caitlin Johnston says, in a high-quality dementia care facility, confused residents who are at risk of unsafe wandering are skillfully redirected away from exit doors by staff members who are trained to provide them with the illusion of freedom while still keeping them in the safety of the care home. And a propaganda-addled populace wandering around trying to find an escape from its oppressors is redirected in very much the same way. She says, if you've ever visited a locked dementia care facility, if you've ever visited a loved one in one of these facilities, especially near sunset, you know how agitated the people who live there can become. The impulse to wander and pace is very common, and then depending on where they're at cognitively, they'll often demand to leave the facility at once so they can go home. Now, when this happens, unskillful staff members will take an openly authoritarian position and tell the resident, you cannot leave, and that the facility is your home now. But she says this confrontational approach invariably leads to agitation on the part of the confused resident, because in their mind, they really do live someplace else, and they're being told they need to remain locked in a strange place that they have no memory of. And this can quickly lead to a catastrophic response that's unpleasant for everyone, especially the resident in question. She says a more skillful staff member will employ a very different strategy. Rather than engaging in futile attempts to persuade someone with severe dementia that they must stay and their perception of reality is wrong, they'll simply say, ah, yes, right away, Mr. Smith, let's go get you ready to leave. They'll take him by the hand, ask him if he wants dinner before he leaves, get him talking about his time in the army, distracting him from the thought of leaving and letting the memory loss do the work for them. In a few minutes, Mr. Smith is happily chowing down on mechanical soft meat and potatoes without a care in the world. Fancier facilities actually have a little maze that kind of directs people right back into the facility, a very carefully controlled exit that nobody ever actually gets to. And she says that's how electoral politics works. The public will periodically become agitated at the way their wealth and resources are being stolen from them and spent on overseas wars or the fact they're deliberately kept poor and busy by a plutocratic system in which the relative wealth of the rich is given more political power by the relative poverty of everyone else. And they're redirected. Ah, yes, Mr. Smith, you can have everything you want. Just vote for the Democratic Party right over there. And Mr. Smith will calm down and stay in the system. This is The Brian Hyde Show.